So, welcome everyone to the Sure Cloud Monthly Threat Briefing. I'm joined again today by Hugh Rayner. Welcome, Hugh. Good Hi afternoon up. to you. How's things going? Yeah, pretty good. good. Back to normal weather now, so I can't. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a little bit more palatable. Yeah, so we've got three, three subjects for for you today that we're gonna that we're gonna get through, and these are all kind of things that have happened in the in the industry, in the news, in the last month or so. Just things that we picked out has obviously been a busy month with you know, various conferences happening like Black Hat and, and DEF CON and things like that. And we may well touch upon some of the things that were brought out there in a, in a future episode. But there was a couple of things that we that we picked out and thought that were relevant subjects for, for this for this month. So the subjects that we're going to cover today are the attack on Cisco by a, a Yang Luang ransomware gang. And I hope I got the pronunciation right there. Uh, we'll do a little a little breakdown of the attack that we the information that we know that's out there and and, and the Talos guys at Cisco have done an incredible job of of highlighting how that's happened and, and things like that. So we'll we'll give a little bit of brief information around that. Um some some advice off the back of it as well. So things that we can action now and, and things that you could take away today to to have a look at and start to think about. We're going to break down the efficient attacks on on two companies in recent times, uh, Twilio and Cloudflare, the reasons why one's one failed and, and one was successful. Uh, and again, some actionable insights so you can take those away and, and discuss them back at base and, and work out what your next step should be off the back of that. And then also there's something that caught our eye around ransomware payments and, and the fact that the NCSC and the ICO called on the law society and obviously the legal profession to to kind of support the position and support their position on, on ransomware payments. We'll kind of get a little bit of a discussion between myself and you around uh, the key points there uh, as well. We also had a few questions in since the last threat briefing as well. So that's really, really great to see. And I do encourage people to, to put them in. One of them we'll answer today because it's very re- relevant to the, the things that we talk about. And one uh, related to, to quantum uh, computing. We'll, we'll, we'll address that one offline, actually. We've got a white paper written that we can share with that person who asked, uh, asked that question. And it's just that we're not covering the topics today. So it would feel a little bit out of, out of place in, in terms of answering that one. Um, but we'll, we'll come back to you on that one separately. Um, so without further ado, um, we'll, we'll get into it. So uh, first up is, is the Cisco attack. So Hugh, a um, couple of questions here for myself. Could you talk us through what we know, you know, about the, the attack so far? You know, what's the information that's out there right now, and and, and what happened with the attack? What was, what was the anatomy of it? Yeah, I think it's it's really quite an interesting one because you, I think of an organization like like Cisco, and I would expect an attack against them to be highly sophisticated, but this one. Um, you know, almost seemed like a like a penetration test with with little real attempt to, you know, be quiet and slip under the radar. So I think that it, it seemed to start with uh, credential compromise from a an employee's personal Google account. Now I think they they got infected or, or, or fished on their own, you know, on their personal account. But then they actually had um, they were logged in on Chrome with the same account of their personal machine. Their, corporate machine and it looks like they were using Chrome's uh, password storage feature for both personal and work purposes as well. So basically what happened was that they managed to compromise the credentials on that individual's machine um, and obviously then could could dump all of the credential matter stored in Google Chrome as well. So that got them access to their Cisco credentials. Uh, from there, it looks like they tried a couple of different things. So they tried um, vishing, so phishing with voice, calling people up. Um, seems like they purported to be from a bunch of different, um, you know, s- support services that that they believe Cisco had contracts with. You know, with that, it's it's quite easy, really. There's a few main players that you'd expect a company like Cisco to have, and so you just make a few different calls and, and, until you get lucky. Another option they they seem to work with was um, 
MFA notification spamming, basically just repeated, repeatedly putting those MFA requests in, especially works on systems where it's a, a yes or a no prompt rather than a, you know, a one-time pad. And we get what we call MFA fatigue, where if a user thinks you know, they can see tens of requests, you know, one a minute coming through, that can, you know, a lot of people think, oh, there's some sort of bug with the system here and press accept. Um, so that is, a, you know, that is quite a significant risk. We're seeing that occurring quite a lot recently. And yeah, so, so they were then able to um, you know, get, get into that Cisco VPN. From there, I think um, things sort of slowed down for the attackers. It doesn't look like they managed to sort of move laterally throughout the, the network much. They were able to elevate their privileges on the machine that they, they landed on, on, the, on that Citrix instance. They, they seem to put some tooling on there as well. Things like, um, you know, how much he's logged me in. I think the, they own that. Tools like TeamViewer, some, some PowerShell um, exploit code, and then really common tooling as well, like Mimikatz and InPacket. Definitely those sort of things. Uh, be, you know, it's sort of surprising to hear that it was even possible for those to get those tools onto those machines. You know, any antivirus is able to pick those up. They put Cobalt Strike on there as well. And not a you know not a, not a cobalt strike payload, not a beacon, but you know cobalt strike itself. So unsure why they would have tried to put the whole um, you know command and control environment. That sort of struck me as a bit odd. And you know from from there it, it was very much you know penetration test behavior, taking these credentials that they'd obtained, you know trying them on various machines throughout the network, and you know despite being sort of quite basic it, it definitely seemed to be human human led as well there were there were typos observed you know scripts don't typically make typos when they're when they're on the command line and really all they all they managed to do as it seems is uh, to create a local administrator account on that one machine and access some non-sensitive files off that that device before it was um, or it was detected and shut down excellent thanks you yeah so it's um i guess it's the boundary between personal use on a on a on a company asset and and the work kind of boundary of the organization starts to get a little bit blurred, right? So, yeah, it's, it's interesting how they the leverage that to to kind of get the initial uh, foothold into the into the device or into the into the user account and, and go from there. How sophisticated would you say this particular attack is? So it sounds not very, but you know, is, is there any insights we can get you know gather from from what's happened? Yeah, I think really it is it is quite low sophistication. It's a phishing attack, which you know we we see a lot of. Whether they were specifically targeting users on on personal devices with the, with the hope of accessing credential matter for you know for Cisco, you know that would be quite a level of sophistication. But you know I don't I don't know that that was necessarily the case, or if they just got lucky. But everything else seems you know very low sophistication. No no trade craft. They weren't using traffic redirectors with their their command and control so it, it very much looked like um you know just just deploying tooling from the web okay perfect yeah um so yeah it does sound so it's not not hugely sophisticated it's worth pointing out as well that, that the talos blog it's well worth a read it kind of breaks it down nicely into the various stages of the attack um they, they've noted that there's no they don't believe any sensitive information was exfiltrated some information did, did get out there so i think they said about 2.8 gigabytes but it sounds like it's from the the personal document storage file, you know, file system of the user that was originally compromised and, and nothing beyond that. And obviously a company of Cisco's size, you'd expect them to have 
huge, 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 vast amounts of, of data, you know, significantly more than 2.8 gigs, for example. So, yeah, Talos has said, and Cisco have said, obviously, via Talos, that there's, they don't believe there's any sensitive information uh, exfiltrated and, and obviously have shared this information on them, you know, the attack on themselves as a, as a learning point. Within the blog as well, Hugh, and you've mentioned a few here, there's a couple of indicators of compromise, so things that happen, so events that would you know, ultimately then lead into becoming an, an incident that were present here. So what were they and, and how could they have helped defensive teams if they did spot them in, in another organisation? Yeah, and uh, I guess this is the bit that sort of perplexes me the most. Things like deploying those software utilities on the machines, you'd expect you know uh, that to be um, logged and, and, and sent to a scene, especially things like you know, creating um, new accounts, new user accounts outside of the joiners, movers, leavers process, especially when they're local admin and, you know, privileged. Absolutely. I would have expected that to be an instant rev flag sent to the, um, you know, the seam correlation and, you know, shut down almost immediately. Yeah, it, it's confusing how they managed to progress, you know, slightly beyond beyond that. Yeah, I, I also don't know the answer to this, but it almost feels like they let them run for a little while just to see what happened. In honesty, yeah, I mean, that would be a very bold move. Um, <laughs> but I sort of agree with you. There's, I can't see any way in which Cisco wouldn't have the capability to immediately shut that down. Yeah, potentially they knew that they couldn't get much further than where they were, but were interested to see the techniques. Perhaps I don't, I don't know for sure, but that's certainly what it felt like reading it. Okay, good. And 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 for the for the listeners, what's the immediate recommendations that we can make today? You know, things to take away and things that we can learn from this piece of information that's out there. Yeah, so I think I guess we've 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 touched on them slightly. Looking at this attack, you know, what mistakes were made? I guess the, the big one there is um, merging of you know business accounts with with personal accounts. And I mean, it's an encouraged practice in some places, right? With with corporately owned, personally enabled devices. But you know, really. The reason this occurred is because that user had company credentials in their personal Chrome password storage. Yeah, which I think is easy to do, right? So you you, you install and run Google Chrome for the first time, it will immediately ask you to sign in, and the default action is to sync everything in the background, passwords included, right? So yeah. and we and we all like hitting that OK button when you do log in somewhere and it pops up. Would you like this to be remembered? Yeah, you know, you're not necessarily paying loads of attention. Your little icon that shows you which Chrome profile you're logged in as is pretty small. It's you know, it's very easy to do to accidentally hit that OK button on the wrong on the wrong profile and look yeah. at the consequences. No, for sure, for sure. And one other recommendation I'd probably add in there is to, if you've got a login system in place, a Seam solution, for example, um, or any kind of EDR type tooling, then it's probably wise to have a look at the the kind of indicators of compromise here. So adding powerful users or adding users to a power users group on a local machine basis, you could extend the same to a domain uh, level. So things like you know, a domain, a new domain admin being added, a new enterprise admin admin being added, or any other the power groups. Um, just make sure that they are being logged, you know, as you expect them to be, and that 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 someone picks up the alert and does something with it in a timely manner rather than you know looking back in hindsight and make, you know and seeing that you've got that data there. Yeah, and absolutely and, and and you know look to extract the most value you can out of the services and software that you're already paying for. So when you have a penetration test done, don't just you know treat that in isolation. Go back and look and see okay the pen test team told me that they created this you know domain admin account where was that log? When was that first noticed? When was it escalated? What were we doing? You know, treat it as an opportunity to you know assess and develop your own you know sort of processes around incident management and response. Perfect. Okay, so to summarise, a non-sophisticated attack that didn't really get very far, didn't ex- exfiltrate a huge amount of sensitive data, 
and was kind of shut down in a good timely manner eventually. Yeah, I think that's probably a decent summary of it. A couple of learning yeah. points out of that as well. Yeah. You make it sound more boring than I think it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sorry about that. Okay, cool. So that's that's the Cisco uh, attack, just kind of deconstructed a little bit and, and some learning points out of it. We'll move on to the next uh, point in the agenda today, which was the the, the phishing attacks on, on the two companies previously mentioned, so uh, Twilio and, and Cloudflare. So um, it looks like this was the same attacking attacker or attacking group that targeted both organizations with, with different outcomes, right? So what were the differences between the two examples mentioned? You know, which one was successful, which one wasn't successful? Yeah, so it looks like um, the attackers were able to you know, successfully compromise uh, an account for, for Twilio and not for Cloudflare, despite almost everything in that attack being the same. Okay, and what's the reasons why one succeeded and one didn't succeed? Yeah, that's the interesting bit, right? So basically, it looks like Cloudflare's MFA implementation was really good, right? So, so they were using FIDO2 authentication, um, you know, most commonly through, through YubiKeys, little hardware tokens that you, you plug into your USB port. And the way that those are configured is, you know, it's fantastic. I could talk all day about the, the joys of FIDO2. But basically, when you first set up that multi-factor authentication, it will look at the origin. So it will look at the, the site with which it is setting up that, that MFA and, and binds it to that. It's called origin binding. So no matter what you do, you physically cannot provide that multi-factor authentication credential to a resource which is not you know, on the same server as the, the legitimate one. So in the vast majority of cases, this basically eliminates the um, chance of, of phishing attacks you know, um, facilitating a login. There are a few, you know, small small number of examples, th- things like subdomain takeover, where, where a user, you know, a malicious attacker could could register um, a, a cloud resource and basically compromise a, a subdomain. Yes, that that probably wouldn't get caught if they were using you know wild cards on their their origin binding. But for the vast majority of cases, that is going to you know completely nip that in the bud. I guess the, the next question is is why wouldn't Twilio have have adopted that as well? And I think for most organisations, it seems to be a cost thing. These keys are you know about fifty US dollars a key, and I would always recommend that each you know person enrolled with that MFA is given two because you don't want to. You don't want to lose your, your only one, right? So you keep one in a cupboard and, and, and using it in an emergency. You know, it looks like looks like Cloudflare went went the whole way and and, and had this MFA enabled. Okay, well, at least on the accounts that were targeted, right? Yeah, yeah, and and that's a really good point, right? Is that not every account is equal, and so your MFA doesn't always have to be equal across the board. Standard users with limited permissions, yeah, app based MFA, perfectly fine. If you've got three or four accounts with, with the keys to the kingdom, yeah, fifty, you know, fifty or a hundred dollars on on securing each of those accounts is is much less of a, you know, an ask than all three thousand of your employees. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Yeah. And there's obviously different degrees of MFA, right? So it's, they're not all made equally. They're not all as effective as each other. Not all, all secure as each other. So I guess I'm, a sensation I'm getting is that the hardware stuff. Yeah, the creme de la creme, it's the top of the, the pile in terms of what you want to have, but can be quite, I guess, cost prohibitive in some larger organizations if you're doing it for everyone. And, and possibly, is it as seamless as it sounds? Is it, is it as frictionless as it sounds for implementation? Yeah, I mean, lots of um, no, SSO providers are are happily accepting that these days, you know, password managers as well. It is really good. And from the security perspective, it is by far the best MFA implementation you can use. 
It's probably not one that I'd recommend to most clients, though, because of, you know, the cost, basically. Um, you know, there are other much more easily deployable methods you know, using a Microsoft Authenticator or something like that. You know, most people probably either have a personal or a corporate mobile device that they kind of carry with them. And so that's basically a, a cost-free option. Then you go down that list and look at things like SMS multi-factor, which again, absolutely much better than no password, uh, than no MFA at all. But, you know, SMS is not a service designed to facilitate, you know, secure transfer of information. And there are SIM swapping attacks and, and, and all manner of things, which reduces the effectiveness of that MFA method. Okay. So summarizes something's better than nothing in terms of MFA. You know, SMS is better than not having nothing at all but it's not infallible. And there's probably other attacks there that, that should be known about. And then you've got to go into your code base MFA, you're into your alert base MFA, which by the way, we talked about in the in the Cisco example, um, whereby the spamming of the MFA tokens can often be a, a bit of an issue as well. And then on top of that, you've got the kind of hardware uh, MFA as well. So yeah, okay, so nice ascending order, but something's better than nothing is, is kind of the message. Absolutely. If you can only go to the um, the bottom rung of that ladder, it's it's better than staying on the floor. Okay, excellent. Are there any other recommendations off the, off the back of, of that discussion that you that we can make to the listeners today? Oh, I think we, we probably covered, covered it. Brilliant. Excellent. Okay, cool. Um, the third topic of today then is around the, the news that the NCSC and the ICO, so they've written a joint letter addressed to the Law Society. So the, the, the key facts are that, that ransomware remains the biggest online threat to, to UK organisations today right so that's not gone away it's not got worse well it probably has got worse actually it's not got any better ultimately so as we well know and as we've talked about in, in previous episodes extensively and you'll have to tune into the news on a very infrequent basis so every every other day every week there seems to be a new attack on someone that's that's ransomware uh, related um so they've, they've issued a joint letter to the law society and the letter is there to remind the law society, so people sign up to the law society of, of what the ransomware advice is from the NCSC and the ICO. The emphasis on that paying a, a ransom is not necessarily guaranteed to keep your data safe. And in the eyes of the ICO, it's not necessarily a mitigation in, in a regulatory action either. So it's worth kind of pointing those, those kind of pieces out. Um, and it is also kind of understood that the in some cases, solicitors have been known to be advising their customers to, to pay a ransom uh, ultimately. So we wanted to have a little discussion around these points and, and in particular the implications of that letter. So I guess the question I would have for you, Hugh, is that is this an ideologically sound uh, but practically feasible, practically infeasible idea here? So we, are we talking about something that's ideologically we can all agree that we shouldn't pay these things, but when it all comes, you know, when push comes to shove and the pressure's on, is that where we really start to kind of see that ideological viewpoint fall apart? Yeah, I think that's that's probably pretty accurate, isn't it? Um I'd be surprised if the NCSC and the ICO went the next step and, and looked to implement legislation here. I think that would cause a huge amount of friction. Of course, we all know no one's oblivious to the what happens when you when you pay a ransom, right? That money goes towards funding further serious organized crime, more malware development, attacking further organizations, you know, industry peers, and you know, even even more than that, yourself in the future. Because as soon as you pay a ransom, you get added to a list of, hey, great, these people pay ransoms. This is fantastic. So you're, you know, you're buying yourself some short-term respite. But you know, when you when you look at it on the flip side, if you've been ransomed for you know fifty thousand dollars and you can see that it's going to take you six months of eight hundred thousand dollars to you know get back to where you were. 
I don't know how any business could, you know, with its best interests at heart, come to the decision of not paying that ransom. Um, just doesn't make economic sense. You know, businesses at the end of the day are out there to to turn a profit, and the options are, are clear, really, in, in my mind. Yeah, no, that's quite true. Yeah, so you, chances are, we we if if the advice or the the legislation is not to pay them, there's every chance that that will actually cost more in the long run. I guess there's no guarantees. You pay one, and and you might not get the decryption key, or they may well still maintain persistence and run somewhere you again down the line. Um, but I'm aware that there's kind of I think terms and conditions attached to to some of these ransomware notes and things like that. You know, that says we, we promise we won't come and touch you again, and we won't come after you again, and all that kind of business. Um, so you know, potentially it's a bit more nuanced than please don't pay it. Um, there's probably a lot of things to, to consider here, I think. And, and the return on investment kind of scenario, the, the equation that you have to balance up of do we pay it and or do we rebuild it that's going to cost a fortune. Clearly massive, you know, massive influence here, particularly in the, in these times where you know there's 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 a cost of living crisis and everything's going up in price and, and so on and so forth. The, the financial and the economic side of this will really pay a, a large part of it uh, ultimately. I guess the question I would have here is that. What can organisations do to to kind of protect themselves here? So, my view is, if, if I would always advise someone not to pay a ransom, but that's not just you know the, the, the advice on its own doesn't necessarily just stand up because it's all well and good sitting here and saying don't pay one, but there's there's for me there's actions that people can take to to you know help them in in the future if something does happen. So about getting the preparedness in place, making sure that they've, they've got the you know an, an ability to recover well and quickly uh, is is the key things here. So reducing that 800 grand spenders in, in the in the example down to the same level you know a couple of days worth of effort to get back on our feet is potentially the things that people can do to get themselves in, into a good place uh, is there anything else beyond that and um, that, that, that people can do uh, to help with that side of things yeah i mean that's that's absolutely the key isn't it is i think we you know i deal with quite a few clients who are you know working with the mindset of i must prevent this you know, this ransomware attack from occurring i must prevent this Yes, obviously we want to take as many steps as we can. We don't want to, we don't want to leave the doors open. But I think that mindset is dangerous given the, you know, these ransomware gangs are getting incredibly sophisticated. They are, you know, basically, you know, large companies. I'm sure they they'd appear on, you know, the, the FTSE 100 some of these gangs if if they were, you know, legitimate businesses. And so the ways the ways they're working are very advanced. And so, you know, against the average organization I'd say you almost have to you know, assume that you're going to get breached. That's that's basically it's not it's not an if it's when. And so, as you said, make sure that we can bring that you know recovery time and recovery costs down as much as we can. You know, we've, we've seen organisations that that have their entire estate as infrastructure as code with you know cloud-based remote backups. You get ransomware, you press you know restart on the system, and suddenly everything's back again. Well, great. They would never have any reason to pay a ransom because they can just click go and it's and things are back. Versus, you know, more static organizations that might not take backups or infrequent backups, you know, where suddenly you're, you're looking at losing maybe a year's worth of of progress. Yeah, for sure. And it's uh, you know, you'll hear people tend to talk to talk to this point around basic hygiene, but I, I would contest the basic side of things. I think these things are quite difficult to do and, and implement at scale. And it's easy for people like us as consultants to kind of say, well, yeah, point of thing. That's that's exactly what you should do. You know, you should go away and implement that right now. But there's there's the implications for that. It's not always as simple as let's pull the trigger on that thing. And I think there's a, a layered approach here. So yes, one thing is being able to prevent it well, but the next bit is how to recover so fast as well. So a couple of different layers to the, to the equation, I think, would really help in, in these cases. Absolutely. I mean, defense in depth is the approach that we, we always want to work with, right? Of course, yeah, yeah. 
so that kind of concludes the, the discussion on the on the NCSE and the ICO open or joint letter that they, they published. Um, I guess there's there's one part. Well, we had a few questions since the last threat briefing. Um, one of which is is related to quantum computing and encryption. So we'll cover that one separately to that person involved, just because it doesn't really fit into the the, the topics of today. Um, so hopefully that's okay. But the other question we did have, and, and it's a bit more of a general question, but certainly we can fit it into today's topics would be, and, and this is from Colin Williams, um, and it's what's what's the one thing we should leave this meeting to sort out if we don't have it in place right now? Yeah, so th that was an interesting one. I think given what we've discussed today, I'd say um, you know a, a really good one would be to go out and, and look at that segregation between personal use and, and company use, especially around you know things like accounts in the browser okay excellent and from my my view would be yep yeah, i think i would agree with that Hugh. but i'd also encourage people to start to think about you know a defense to attacks in in multiple layers you look at the, the cisco example that we covered earlier on and when you look back through the technical descriptions yes they've got access to a to, to the vpn and into a, a citrix box but then to progress they had to then move through different layers of of security controls that are in place so i think having that mindset of when we do build something or when we build something new or we, we re-architect something, how we think about the multiple layers and, and different levels of controls that you can put in around uh, around an asset, for example, to, to try and protect it more. Yeah, Excellent. fantastic. Brilliant. Um, that concludes us for today. Uh, I think we're, we're right on time as well at, at 16.30. So, um, Hugh, again, as always, uh, appreciate your time, appreciate your insights. It's been a pleasure to speak to you this afternoon. Thank you, everyone, on the call for attending. Again, really do appreciate it. Any any questions in the future, please do send them in as well, and we'll, we'll try and tie them into the subjects of the month and, and answer them on there. Uh, again, thank you, everyone, and have a good rest of the week. <laughs>